0: Welcome to the Public morality. The last 10 months has been unprecedented in the House of Representatives. Back in January, it required 15 votes for Kevin McCarthy to become the speaker. After McCarthy worked with Democrats to keep the government open for an additional 45 days, he was ousted soon after. That led to several individuals vying to replace McCarthy until little-known backbencher Mike Johnson Garnered the requisite votes to become the 56th Speaker of the House. What impact will this have on governing? Will aid for Israel and Ukraine pass? Will the government be shut down? To begin this conversation, I'm joined by University of Chicago political science professor Ruth Block Rubin. Professor Ruth Block Rubin, welcome to the public. Thank you morality. so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, it's an honor. Um, I want to begin. Uh, since Kevin McCarthy lost the speakership, it became comedic fodder for some, you know, various attempts between playing up or playing down its impact. Did the time between McCarthy's ouster and the eventual deciding uh, decision to make Mike Johnson the next speaker have any long-term Uh, impact on the American democracy, or or is it too soon to tell?
1: Well, I think it's probably too soon to tell. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, well, I think I would say the following, which is that it's important not to undersell the magnitude historically of the events. Like uh, there have been battles over speakers. McCarthy was the first speaker to be unseated. Uh, Some speakers sort of saw the writing on the wall and resigned and, Point You could point to Boehner, but historically, it's not unusual for speakers to leave their posts. Um, it's not an easy job, and people choose to retire or are sort of pushed out and leave before um, they're forced out. But McCarthy was the first person who... Uh, essentially made the conference uh, push him out. And so um, that's a big deal Uh, there. It's a rare time for something totally new to happen in Congress at this point. And and that happened. And so I don't want to undersell the magnitude, uh, historically speaking, and for those who are interested in legislative politics of what happened. But I think um, it's also probably the case that uh, for many for the day to day lives of most Americans, um, the long term implications of this kind of leadership unrest uh, is probably not all that important. Um, one way to think about this is that a lot of what Congress does takes a very long time. And so while delays uh, that accrue because there's uh, difficulty identifying a leader, um, that that, you know, if for the average American, we're not necessarily likely to see that um. Sort of stack up for ourselves. Like there's lots of things that happen to delay legislation. Um, I think this the the concerning thing is that um, one has some con- some reason to worry that uh, the turmoil that McCarthy experienced is not going to be isolated to just him. And so as a result, um, we might uh, have reason to fear that uh, uh, Speaker Johnson may may be subject to the same kinds of threat making by um, uh, sort of the far right of the party uh, and with such a narrow majority, it's going to be very difficult to govern effectively. And so that's something that uh, all Americans should worry about because we need Congress to work.
0: I'm, I'm going to come back to your last po- uh, point uh, in a moment. Uh, I'm wondering, is the epitaph on Speaker McCarthy's, uh, former Speaker McCarthy's uh, reign, um, the path to becoming Speaker can never include Fossey and bargains that undermine his or her ability to lead.
1: I mean, probably realistically, most speakers have to make bargains with their members to get elected. Even Nancy Pelosi, who is a master legislator and probably one of the most powerful speakers of the past century, had to make deals with members, uh, progressives on the left and moderate members on the right, uh, including uh suggesting that she wasn't going to seek uh the speakership in future congresses to to get uh, elected as uh, her speakership wore on and so um i think it's unrealistic to think that you never have to make bargains i think the the problem for mccarthy was that um the bargains the procedural bargains he made including um the uh lowering the threshold for a motion to vacate the chair to be offered uh put a loaded gun in the hands of rabble rousers. And just the fact of such a narrow majority meant that whatever bargain uh, he had promised to make or he promised to deliver on, he didn't necessarily have the membership to back it up, right? Um, And so, you know, if you promise the far right that you're going to alter legislation, you have to be able to keep moderates on board with those agreements, uh, and you can't afford to lose that many of them. And so, you know, just keeping... Everybody in the same wheelbarrow, to borrow uh, John Boehner's metaphor of frogs in a wheelbarrow, keep all those frogs in the wheelbarrow all the time to deliver concessions you made to just a small number of your conference, that's really hard. And so you might say it wouldn't have mattered what bargains you made beyond providing that procedural mechanism to get rid of you once people decided they weren't happy.
0: Well, then could one posit that McCarthy was ultimately the primary contributor to his own demise by seeding undue power to a raucous minority.
1: Well, if you wanted to be a critic of McCarthy, I think that's an available critique. Um, and I'm sure you know someone will write a biography and, and that'll be the thesis. Uh, if you wanted to be more even handed, you might say, look, um, the problem McCarthy had was that winning the speakership um, was going to be difficult for anybody, and he was pretty determined that he be the one uh, to get that job. And somebody else might have come along and seen the amount of opposition after, say, maybe the seventh ballot in that initial speakership election and say, you know what, maybe this job isn't for me. Um, I'm going to let someone else take the reins. Um, And that substitute person, that new candidate might not have had an easier time. It's not like Um, McCarthy was a bad candidate uh, for the speakership per se. I mean, in many ways, uh, had a lot of uh, chips in his favor uh, to be able to dole out. Um, He's an incredible fundraiser. As party whip, he had gotten to know members. I think he was um, reasonably well-liked, although not well-trusted. And so maybe what this speakership battle reveals is what members value and what they don't. And, you know, one thing you, you might say is like the currency that leaders have is not only their ability to persuade and to deliver to members, but that the promises they make to members across the board, uh, people have to trust, even if you're being delivered bad news. And, and perhaps McCarthy was someone who wasn't known uh, to be able to tell, give people the hard truth. And, and that ultimately proved to be his demise.
0: Now, uh, moving forward, do, do we know if Speaker Johnson acquiesced to the same limitations that McCarthy did in his quest to become Speaker?
1: I don't think we know much right now about what Johnson promised individual members um, or factions within the Republican party. Um, I think members may have taken on faith uh, certainly the hard right, taken on faith, uh, his um, commitment to their policy goals, um, given his own stated preferences. Um, they may have been willing to afford him more room uh, to maneuver a uh, sort of Wiggle room, if you will, than they did McCarthy. Um, it's not clear, I think, what assurances he gave moderates uh, to the extent um, that they were worried or are worried about leadership moving the conference even farther right and making it harder for them to run in uh, districts uh, that have voters who are supportive of, uh, for example, Joe Biden, um, or just sort of generally closely divided. Um, uh, so, you know. Uh, moderate republicans in like new york for instance um i don't think we know yet um and he may not have offered much at all i think you know one of the advantages he had is coming after so many uh days and you know weeks of churn and turmoil that uh, it's quite possible that members were just satisfied to have just about anyone and in in many ways it may have helped him that uh, some of the candidates who uh, moderates or other members would have been more worried about had already uh, attempted to take the gavel and failed. So, for example, you might say, well, at least he's not Jim Jordan.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, to, to, to that extent, um, you know, there there's a, a concept that Machiavelli offers in The Prince where he, he warns that once the prince goes to the limits of his power, you can never go back to that same place again. Um, do you think the far right um, is in a similar situation to where the the extent that they went to oust McCarthy, they probably can't go there again with, with Speaker Johnson or, or, or maybe there are new rules now.
1: I think it's really an interesting question. And, and I think there are two ways to think about it. So, I think the allusion to Machiavelli is great. So it's possible that having, having burned your political capital, ousting McCarthy, you just don't have any left with your uh, fellow conference members to play that card again. Right. Um, alternatively, another way to think about it is to think about um, how uh, vacating the chair is, is somewhat like impeaching uh, an individual where having impeached one president or a, uh, sort of made the moves to do so, it becomes a routine part of politics. Uh, And then everyone feels like they're free to do it because we've seen that there's been limited political repercussions, or at least that's the story you could tell. Um, If if Republicans fare... OK, or can blame somebody else uh, for challenges in the next uh, election, uh, whether that's an unpopular presidential candidate or what have you um, for their their the challenges they may or may not experience, um, then, you know, you might say, hey, this is a great tool and we're going to use it. And now that we've seen that the uh, the republic doesn't come crashing down, it's available to us. Um, I I would tend to think that you're you're probably right, that it's more likely a card that people aren't going to tolerate being played all that frequently. But I do think we have to, you know, recognize that hardball tactics, once deployed, become kind of routine features of politics.
0: Um, You sort of alluded to this previously, but from the outside looking in, it seems Republicans ended up um, with Johnson and that he could get the requisite votes to become speaker. Uh, more so than he being someone that the caucus wanted. He, uh, prior to this, he was a backbencher. I think some Democrats said they had to look him up; they didn't know much about him. How much does that matter when it comes to governing?
1: Well, I guess there's a variety. You know, as in anything, there's a variety of ways to look at it. I mean, you're. I think it's. I think it's fair to say he's a, a clean slate, um, and and maybe that's useful to reset relationships. Uh, both within the House uh, and with the Senate and, and perhaps with the White House. I think, um, at least in negotiations with Democrats, is probably overly optimistic. Um, but, you know, McCarthy had baggage. and It's it's certainly possible that um, being just a regular member uh, who is now elevated to leadership carries with it some reputational benefits. I mean, one thing that's important to note is that in the House, members on both sides of the aisle have been frustrated over the past decade or so with the extent to which leadership controls day-to-day operations uh, for how the house functions. And there's been pressure to decentralize power. And so perhaps um, members will be satisfied with the idea that, you know, there's a regular guy in the speakership, right? Someone who will be in touch with uh, what it's like to be a backbencher because, you know, he just was. This is not someone who's risen through the ranks of leadership and has had a variety of important offices, uh, and, and, and so maybe that's appealing. Um, I mean, that's certainly how many people think about like what we like in a presidential candidate. Um, I think the reality is though, that, um, Governing the House and managing intraparty conflicts is really difficult, uh, and the work of legislating requires a considerable amount of expertise, um, both in terms of knowing procedure, knowing who to talk to, uh, being a, a good, capable vote counter, um, knowing how to talk and relate with your members and get a sense of whether people uh, are going to tell you one thing and then vote differently, um, and and it's also worth noting that one of the things that helps smooth over intra-party conflicts is fundraising. Uh, and here's one place where like McCarthy and Johnson look quite different. Uh, McCarthy was a prolific fundraiser and distributed uh, a great deal of uh, cash uh, and financial resources to his membership and in perhaps most importantly to um, the moderate members who help provide Republicans their majority. And, and Johnson does very little of that or has historically. Um, and so, you know, when when you need, when you owe a guy money uh, or, you know, you thank him for having gotten you there or keeping you in office, you may be more likely to cooperate. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether Johnson's able to sort of overcome those structural challenges.
0: Well, to, to that extent, um, for, for as much as one can tell, uh, the House of Representatives, for a brief period of time, was held hostage by eight far-right Republican members, who essentially became the power behind the throne. And so they they, they created, um, I guess, the inverse of Madison, in that they were the, that the the rest of the House uh, uh, was a victim of a tyranny of the minority. Is that over, or does that possibility still linger?
1: Well, I mean, I, I suppose it depends. Um, I, I think Johnson is going to be relying on the cooperation of the same members who were critical to McCarthy's ouster in order to keep his job. Um, I, I think, you know, they it, to the extent that they see him as their their speaker, the person that they were instrumental in putting into this position, they may be willing to give him a little bit more leeway because they want him to be successful. And so in that sense, it may be more of a cooperative arrangement. Um, But I think one of the challenges for Johnson or anyone in Republican leadership right now is that uh, for those who are on the far right, part of the uh, messaging strategy, part of what their brand is, is to be anti-establishment, uh, to sort of push the boundaries. And so they, you might say that one of the things that uh, sort of very conservative members do is use leadership as a benchmark uh, for what they think they can get. And so whatever Johnson offers may quickly be deemed insufficient um, over the long term. And so i, I if I were... predictive uh, someone who enjoyed making predictions i would worry uh, or i would think that you know johnson's likely to experience some honeymoon period and then uh conservatives may start you know grumbling that uh what he's offering is again not enough of what they're asking for
0: well Speaker johnson has already suggested that he's open to a standalone aid package to israel which obviously signals he's not prepared to put additional aid to Ukraine on the floor for a vote. If the speaker makes good on this promise, what's the global ramifications in your view of the of US curtailing aid to the Ukraine?
1: I mean, I'm not a scholar of foreign policy, but um, as as someone who reads the newspaper, I think it's certainly problematic uh, for Ukraine and for the United States allies abroad um, to, to fear that the funding for uh, foreign conflicts where America is deemed its interest is in supporting a country, that that aid is sort of contingent on some domestic politics and partisan hardball. I think that's that's not great and is not a good advertisement for the functioning of American democracy. And to the extent that people count on the United States to deliver, this is not um, this is not likely to make them feel better about our system of government. Uh, I think the, the the real question is, you know, how serious Johnson is about uh, this particular aid package. I think, you know, reporting suggests that it's a dead on arrival in the Senate. Both McConnell and Schumer, uh, the uh, Republican and Democratic leadership in the Senate, respectively, are interested in a more comprehensive aid package that would bundle Ukraine aid with Israel um, as well as um some other uh, foreign allies. And so I think there's, you know, perhaps this is mostly about trying to appease the right wing initially. um, And that, uh, you know, you can blame the Senate for the legislation you ultimately have to accept. Um, That's certainly a tried and true pathway, but that may not be Johnson's game. And I guess we'll just have to see. Hmm.
0: Well, as you, as, as you well know, Congress narrowly avoided a government shutdown late in September, which can, which actually it contributed to McCarthy's ouster by extending its appropriations to November 17. Assuming the AGO representatives are behind, are, are the power behind the throne, avoiding a government shutdown could depend on how badly Johnson wants to remain speaker. What, what are your thoughts?
1: I think that's exactly right. I mean, one of the interesting things I think about, uh, governance is that your incentive structure changes when you assume uh, a leadership position. And, and so it, it, you know, one of the, what there are a variety of interesting things that may flow from this, but um, one of which is to see whether, you know, what, what Johnson member Johnson wants is different from what Speaker Johnson wants. Um, But I do think uh, that given that funding is so central to what conservative uh, sort of the far right or ultra conservatives within the Republican Party have demanded that it's in some ways a litmus test of what kind of speakership he's going to have. Um, The challenge for him is that um government shutdowns are are really problematic for leadership um you know you can't have them or at least we typically think you cannot have them last forever and so at some point you're going to have to strike a deal um and and perhaps johnson's hoping that democrats will cave before he has to um uh but you know that's that's you're playing with fire there
0: well you you know you just touched on something I, i think it's really important in the time we have left together um Talk about just the difference between being a member of the house and being speaker of the house. I mean, because those are very, very different roles.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's worth noting that um, there are procedural rights that flow from being a leader and procedural rights that flow from being a member. Then there are different, sort of electoral incentives that we can talk about. And then there are different sort of policy concerns or time horizons. Um, so, you know, as a regular member, you run your own office. Uh, the House is said to be uh you know, filled with small businesses, each member organizes their office as they wish. And so um, different representatives uh, seek a different balance among the policy pursuits they may have. Um, they provide constituent service. So if you've ever needed a passport rushed, you call your member of Congress. They can help. Uh, and so members are sort of day to or- day oriented to both sort of policy work and to this constituent service work. Um, and they were also really devoting a lot of their time to getting reelected. Um, it requires a lot of money to run. And so you're spending a lot of time going back to your district, meeting with people, fundraising. Uh, and so it's kind of a grind. Um, for leaders, the workload is magnified, um, but the kind of power that flows um, from being a leader uh, is quite Uh, significant. Um, Whereas members can help to propose and draft legislation, they have no guarantee that it's going to uh, reach the floor. Uh, instead, it may get turfed over to a committee, uh, whereas leaders can you know, put their thumb on the scale in favor of legislative initiatives that they want. They also help to set the legislative agenda, which means they get to determine which pieces of legislation the party prioritizes. And they have procedural rights uh, that help them staff committees with individuals that are going to be favorable to the legislation they care about. And so sort of your autonomy as a leader is significantly more in the modern Congress uh, than it is uh, as a member. Um, But your responsibilities are greater, too, because not simply you're not simply deciding on the policies that you care about, but you're thinking about the policies that are going to be good for your party. Um, You're going to be fundraising not just for yourself, but for your colleagues. Uh, and you're going to be thinking about, you know, ways not simply to help your own constituents, but to help different segments of your party's voter base. Uh, and so, again, the the sort of scope of work that you're asked to do as a leader is significantly more than any individual member is likely to have encountered, which is why I think most of Times you are electing a speaker, it's somebody who's had some leadership experience, uh, whether they've uh, sort of worked their way up uh, through the party hierarchy, as Nancy Pelosi did, uh, or, you know, they spend some time in leadership or adjacent to leadership, like former Speaker Paul Ryan. Um, and so they have some sense of what it's like to be responsible for people other than themselves within Congress.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about, because in my view, there seems to be Three levels. When when you're talking about shutting down the government, which is, well, we could be two weeks away from that. Uh, we don't know. But but there's three levels. There, there, there's the international level. There, there's the larger macro domestic level, and then at the, the individual level. Talk about the impact on those on those three levels to the best of your ability on shutting down the government and what it would mean on those three levels, if you will.
1: So I think there's the, those three levels as you identify. There's also sort of the short, medium, and long term. Um, so I think in the you know initial days post a shutdown, the you know executive branch starts to anticipate that funding isn't going to come through, and they can make some shifts uh, in allocations to try and cover shortfalls where necessary. Um, but that's that's a short term uh, fix. Uh, and so I think internationally uh, there's. Uh, There's going to be concern from uh, U.S. allies, certainly uh, Ukraine and Israel, that uh, aid that is promised or that, you know, they anticipated receiving isn't going to come through or certainly not on the timeline that was deemed necessary. Um, And that's a concern, although um, to the extent that um, the Pentagon has already allocated materials and resources that were already created, you know, it's not a complete cutting off of the spigot, but it's certainly not good. Um, For the average uh, American experiencing um, life on the domestic front, I think, you know, we may remember from previous government shutdowns, you know, the closure of uh, uh, public parks, museums, um, things like this, uh, and then a slowdown in uh, for individuals who receive like social security checks. There's concern over uh, the flow of veterans benefits and things like this. Uh, Most shutdowns haven't gotten that far, in part because that's considered um, to be Uh, so unpopular that people aren't going to tolerate it. uh, And so that prompts a compromise. Um, But, you know, over the long term, people would start to be experiencing that. And then just the work of governing. I mean, if you're a member of Congress, um, you have a lot of things you want to be doing. And if you're just sitting around uh, debating the same old question, which is, are we going to fund government or not? It gets in the way of doing a lot of the other important legislating that you may have come to Congress, regardless of whether. Um, you're a Democrat or Republican or, you know, sort of where you stand on the ideological spectrum. Presumably you, you care about certain policy goals and and arguing about government funding is just getting in the way of making action on, on those important priorities you may have.
0: Finally, uh, American democracy, in my view, is a continuing drama. And this current variation began in 1787. How long would it take, in your estimation, for the last 10 months, which appears to be a a House majority that was operating outside the mainstream, how long would that take for for that behavior to become our new normal?
1: I suppose one way to think about it, especially if you think about um, questions like this historically, which I, I tend to, is that the only normal feature of American politics is sort of a constant change. Uh, and so I think one of the things that um, gives me comfort about our contemporary politics is that as soon as we get used to a set of dynamics, they eventually evolve um, and, and perhaps not as quickly as we would like. Um, but, you know, we're, we're living in a period of time that uh, is uh, incredibly polarized, but also where the country is quite narrowly split. So we see this reflected in Congress with very narrow majorities and um uh, strict sort of party unity, um, and, and limited cross-party collaboration. Um, but at different points in American history, we've very different circumstances have obtained. And so I, I think, um, it's quite possible that, um, over time, uh, and and perhaps in the me- near to medium term, uh, though some of those trends will reverse. Uh, it may be the case that what we're looking for is, you know, a presidential election where uh, one party is able to gain a, a more substantial majority, um, whether that's Republicans or Democrats. And so that will change these dynamics by altering one of the two variables that seems to be causing uh, such challenges when it comes to governing. Mm-hmm.
0: Professor Ruth Block-Rubin, I want to thank you so much uh, for your uh, wise insight and thank you for joining us today on The Public Morality. It's been much appreciated. It's been honored to have you on that.
1: Thank you so much, Byron. It was a pleasure to speak with you.
0: That was Ruth Block-Rubin. Stay tuned as I speak with American University political science professor James Thurber on WSNC's The Public Morality. Welcome back. I'm now joined by James Thurber, a distinguished professor at American University. Professor James Thurber, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you. I want to begin with the question that I posed to my previous guest, uh, Professor uh, Ruth Block Rubin. Was the path for Kevin McCarthy to become speaker just fraught with too many Fosse bargains that undermined his ability to lead?
2: Well, I think that he undermined it by wanting power. It was really a a Faustian thing. Now, Faust wrote about the uh, uh, contract with the devil, with Mephisto, and he gave away so much power in order to keep power that it was impossible for him to lead. I think this whole uh, one person can uh, move uh, a motion to vacate has to change or Our new speaker, Mike Johnson, will not be able to to, uh, uh, lead either. Uh, Our democracy requires compromise. And it seems that the Republicans in the House of Representatives are unwilling to compromise on a whole lot of different things, especially working with the Democrats. When you have a majority of four, uh, you've got to reach out to the other party. But when when people have done that, like Ryan uh, and Boehner, they've gotten fired. Uh, Ryan uh, <clears throat> reached out to the Democrats on 38 major bills. Uh, that's the only way to get them passed, including get a, getting rid of No Child Left Behind and you know amendments to the Elementary and Secondary Edu- Education Act. And the far right, uh, the Tea Party, then later Freedom Caucus people, uh, didn't want that and they fired him. So we, we now have a speaker, uh, yes, that's in there, but is uh, in a very difficult position. He's called for changing the vote on to vacate the speaker. I don't know. That'll be his big first test within the party as to whether he can get that or not.
0: But, but uh, to, to, to your last point, wasn't that sort of McCarthy's undoing that he kept the government open through November 17th and didn't that lead to his ouster? Just So if that's the case, is, is governing an impossibility under the current configuration.
2: I think it's exceedingly difficult uh, for any Republican to lead the House of Representatives because they have so many factions. America is polarized between the two parties. They're polarized inside the party. The Democrats are polarized also with a very large uh, progressive caucus. But Pelosi and now Jeffries uh, have the skill to keep people together. And to vote together, uh, the Republicans haven't shown that they can do that, uh, and that's that's going to be a major problem. I mean, they keep calling people like McCarthy a rhino. He's not a rhino. He's just a person who was Speaker of the House for everybody for America, which means you've got to work with the Democrats. Now, Mike Johnson is unknown. Uh, You know, after three weeks of turmoil, they wanted somebody and I guess they wanted somebody that they didn't know very well. Uh, First, Louisiana to be Speaker of the House of Representatives. Uh, We know a little bit about him, but he is very conservative and very supportive of Trump, Uh, a strong uh, MAGA or MAGA person. Uh, And I think that that's going to cause a lot of problems for the moderates. Yes, there are a few moderates in the Republican Party, especially those 18 Republicans that won in districts where Biden won. And some of those are, you know, in in New York, upstate New York, but elsewhere. They're going to have real problems with uh, uh, Mike Johnson's uh, politics uh, personally, but also with what he has to do to govern
0: you know you you mentioned earlier that um, Democrats vary, Republicans vary, but there has I mean I think we're still there should be agreement, at least the way I see the world. There should be agreement on this larger and macro concept, Madisonian democracy. and And I'm wondering, under this Madisonian rubric, um, have the Republicans, in your view, the Republicans in the House, I should say become the type of faction that Madison feared.
2: Absolutely. Madison, um, by the way, I just put this in context. We have an award at American University. I help help, uh, get this going called the Madison Award. And every two years, we give it to two members that are willing to work with the other party and support the institution. It's been very hard (laughs) to find some Republicans on that side. They're in the Senate is where they are. Warned us of the tyranny of factions. And in those days, it was parties. Today, it's factions within uh, the parties, especially the Republican Party. And so, you know, the impact of this on the House during two wars, uh, inflation, all kinds of other problems that we have is, is a challenge to
0: our democracy. And I'm worried about it. From, from the outside looking in, uh, which is the cheap seat that I occupy, it seems Republicans ended up with Johnson in that he could get the requisite votes more so than he being someone the caucus really wanted. How much, in your view, in your experience, does that matter when it comes to governing? Well, we're in a unique situation with uh, Mike
2: Johnson. He's not well-known, but he also he doesn't have very much experience with leadership at all. And so to put your question in that context, he weeks, all kinds of other things after firing McCarthy, Uh, he was the lesser of a whole lot of evils to those on the right. He's in, I don't know how long he can govern, uh, and it's going to be a serious problem. He's he's mentioned a couple of things about governing. One, and he was appealing to our right on this, he wants to go back to the regular order. He used the term decentralization. The regular order is where you, you learned it in Schoolhouse Rock, your kids did, you did, where you introduce a bill, it goes to a committee or uh, depending on the jurisdiction of that committee, that goes to the subcommittee. If it moves, they have a subcommittee hearing, a full committee hearing in the house. It goes to the rules committee and then it goes to the floor uh, from the subcommittee, full committee to the floor in the Senate. And then it goes to a conference committee. We don't even have conference committees anymore. We have centralized power and undermine the regular order because of the narrow margins in both parties, the leadership has to centralize it in in order to get things done. So he's one day he's promising decentralization and the regular order, considering these appropriation bills. So we don't shut down government. And on the other hand, the first thing he comes out with is uh, his approach to funding uh, uh, Israel, not even Ukraine. He voted against funding Ukraine, in the Armed Services Committee, by the way. He's against that personally. Uh, But he he centralized power. The Ways and Means Committee that handles taxes didn't even consider the issue of cutting cutting funding uh, for the IRS and neither did the Appropriations Committee. And the Appropriations Committee, Defense Subcommittee and Appropriations, they fund Ukraine, Israel, uh for these wars. They haven't even considered it either. They haven't had a bill that went from the committee to the rules committee to the floor. He he announced this uh against what he said just a couple of days ago, where he wanted to decentralize power. Now that's a lot of uh of detail, but it's important to know because the far right uh wants to go back to the regular order. I think most members want to go back to the regular order, but in order to get things done, they centralize it. And it really undermines trust uh, in the institution when that happens.
0: Mm. For those who are searching through their YouTube uh, clips to, under- to know which Schoolhouse Rock Professor Thurber was referring to, that would be, I'm um, just a bill. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> I, I'm, dating, I'm dating myself. Uh, well, no, no, we're dating ourselves, plural, <laughs> sir. Plural. <laughs> um, but you you, you mentioned um, that uh, Speaker Johnson has already made clear he wanted a standalone bill for aid to Israel and not Ukraine. What impact does that have? I, it's a question I posed uh, earlier, but what impact does that have if you do not fund, if you put a hold on funding Ukraine,
2: well, first of all, he it's not only uh, not considering funding for Ukraine, but not considering humanitarian aid uh, for the people that are suffering in Gaza, in West Bank, in the Middle, you know, in 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 Israel. There is a, a large portion of the bill for that as well as something for the border also it's a very large bill 106 billion dollars he's come forward with 14.3 for israel you know i have a former student uh, that i've known for 30 years in ukraine i've been there several times he's coming to visit here shortly and they are very worried in ukraine about all of this about whether they're going to be left uh, alone without support of the united states if that happens the support from other uh, NATO nations will go down. It, it's a tragedy. And if you want to stand up against bullies, uh, meaning Putin, uh, I think that, uh, that this is a major problem for our foreign and defense policy, not uh, supporting a bill with Israel and Ukraine at the same time. I think he's doing it because he's got a lot of people in the far right that do not want to fund Ukraine, including himself. He voted against it. Uh, uh, all I can say is it's gonna be dead on arrival to the Senate and, it's, and whatever comes out of, if there's something like this out of the House and the Senate, I don't think there will be, it'll be dead on arrival in the White House during a crisis, a threat to the world, a threat to the Middle East, a threat to us. Uh, it seems to me not the first thing you do as a new speaker.
0: Well, well compounded on top of that, um could be um, I guess sort of a uh, a pocket veto in the form of uh, not funding the government after November 17th. so that could be a form of a pocket veto, could it not, for this type of aid that you're that you're concerned about?
2: Yes, and so we have that also I should you know we're we're threatened with another shutdown. Uh, I don't see uh, how he's going to uh, to go forward without without compromising, uh, what he's recommending is, is really out of, is totally out of the norm on the hill with White House, it's dead on arrival in the Senate, uh, and he needs to fund the government somehow, they do in the House and the Senate before no, November 17th, and I'm sure that part of that will be Israel and Ukraine, maybe hum- humanitarian aid also. Uh, but that's his first major issue: is funding the government, keeping things going. And uh, his first major policy statement doesn't sound like he, he's going in that
0: direction. Well, you know, I do I not consider myself an expert on politics, but there's one thing that I know that binds, uh, say, Chip O'Neill and Nancy Pelosi and, and Sam Rayburn and anyone else who's been speaker is the ability to count. Um, Uh, 18, which you mentioned earlier, the 18 um, Republican representatives that that are the one in districts that President Biden carried is greater than eight. Um, The the number of um, Democrats that are unified is greater than 18. Um, You can get these things passed by reaching across the aisle. So the question is... In your view, and when covering this stuff, do you see Johnson's desire to to maintain um, the speakership greater than his desire to do the people's business?
2: Great question. I think he he is, uh, uh, he has an agreement that's Faustian. Again, uh, it's almost impossible for him to lead if he doesn't change some of the rules and uh, and have some uh, discipline with his caucus. Now, you mentioned Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi had a majority of two and then a majority of four. She still got major pieces of legislation done. Uh, And let me just give you an example of that. When the uh, mansion bill came from the Senate and they gave up on Build Back Better, BBB, and it was a mansion bill, totally different, came to the House, Uh, over 95 progressive Democrats were against it, okay? Uh, and so they walked out of the Democratic caucus, that's the caucus when all the Democrats get together and they discuss whether they're gonna vote for something. They walked out, they went to, a, uh, to the visitor's center of the Capitol where they have an auditorium and they sat there and they, they were arguing. And all of a sudden in the middle of the meeting, uh, Nancy Pelosi walks in through the back door now she walks in. She's a member of the of the progressive caucus. Never really met with them. She walked in, walked down to the first row, and sat there without saying a word. And all of a sudden, there were people who came to the podium and said, "We have to honor the speaker. This is a major, important bill. Uh, this is the last, uh, you know, the last session she's going to be speaker." And all of a sudden, the whole room turned around, and she got up and walked out without saying a word. That's power. That's discipline. And the way you got the way she got that is uh, is bringing in lots of money for many Democrats. She's a great campaign uh, uh, finance person, bringing in money to the to the Democratic Party for people in competitive districts. Uh, they owed her. In the iron law of re- uh, reciprocity, she helped them, and then she called on them to help her. Now, back to this situation, Mike Johnson is has not, a hasn't been, maybe will now be a very big fundraiser at all. Uh, and he doesn't have a lot of reciprocal relationships with people, power relationships. He couldn't do that. He couldn't walk into one of the caucuses, and there are about seven of them in the, Democratic uh, Republican Party that are related to general policy. I'm not talking about the 170 that are related to the Mushroom Caucus and all that. He couldn't walk in and have them turn around the way she did. She had power. Sam Rayburn had power. They knew how to count, but they had power behind the counting.
0: Well, just given that answer, um, that you just made a great case for Kevin McCarthy to still be speaking because what one thing Kevin McCarthy could do was raise money. So what was the disconnect there? Perhaps
2: disconnect was he had he had uh, about two or three people on the far right that were willing to have a vote on uh, vacating him, and the votes were there to do it, and he was out, um, and he couldn't appease them enough. Matt Gates didn't even have a core of philosophy, in my opinion, behind his, his willingness to go after the speaker. It was all personal, related to Matt Gates' personal behavior in his district and that being referred to the ethics committee and the speaker allowed that and he was furious over it. And the, and the, the word is that that's that's why he went after it. Uh, it wasn't principled on balance of budget or, or – Aid to Ukraine or something like that. Uh, it was totally different. it only took one person and then you know about eight others to to get rid of him. Um, it, it is an impossible situation for the Republicans unless they can push the caucus to a more moderate position and and work with the Democrats. In the end, they've got to work with the president. This is divided party government. Uh, they've got to work with the Senate that is working together. The two parties there together, uh, they're they're uh, more moderate in many ways than than uh, certainly than what he is and what the House expresses. And then, of course, there's a the president. We have separation of powers and, and he can veto something. And if he vetoes something, uh, that makes it very difficult. So this is a tough time uh, having this kind of of activity and competition going on when we have two wars going on. Uh, It is, uh, plus we have the threat of China and South China Sea and Taiwan. We have Korea. We we know all of these threats. Uh, This is a time that we need to come together as a nation, and I don't see it happening under Mike Johnson yet.
0: Um, How much, in your view, do we the people bear responsibility for this? Because there doesn't, in my view, there doesn't seem to be any consequences for pulling these kind of shenanigans, again, my view, my words, where members go outside the traditional democratic guardrails. There's no penalty to be paid for that when you're ensconced in a safe district. You can do whatever you want, say whatever you want, and there's no pushback. So, in your view, do we, the people, bear some responsibility for the way things have gone the last couple of years?
2: In some cases, um, the real election in America is the primary election in the House of Representatives, so for example. There are only about 30 districts, maybe 40, that are competitive where people win by 55 percent or less, and that's because of sorting uh ideological sorting where people live around people that they agree with in rural America and urban America and we draw lines around the sort we redistrict and in some states we have commissions seven that really work in about 21 they say they have commissions that do redistricting there's more competition there um, so part of this problem is sorting and redistricting we, but behind all of that is that we have polarization among voters that reflect deeper divisions in American society. We have racial divides between the two parties. We have cultural divides between the two parties on on lifestyles, values, morality, uh, even wearing masks or not divide the parties. We have an ideological divide from uh, for many years between the Democrats and Republicans on how large the government should be, whether we should balance the budget, uh, what the proper role and size of government should be, and a battle over order versus freedom. And that is uh, reinforced through social media and ideological divide on social media, where people go to places where they agree. uh, And that gets reinforced. So to blame the people, it's partially correct, but let's take Matt Gates district. He won by 36% last time and the money came flowing into him when, when he got rid of uh, uh, Speaker McCarthy. Some of these people come from such safe districts that are really out of the norm for, for America generally, and they use that as a platform to become, Known nationally, and then they get all kinds of campaign contributions, which gives them even more power. So we have a geographic divide. You know it uh, from you know the the southern states and the I would call the cowboy states versus the coastal populations and urban and suburban and rural areas. All of this sorting is behind what we have, uh, and redistricting puts a line around the, that sort in the. Um, in the House of Representatives. The Senate's different. Uh, We have very different states. Uh, We really have the most maldistributed legislative assembly in a democracy in the world. Why? Because it is dominated by rural states. You've got about 38 states. It takes about 38 states, if you pick them right, to to equal uh, California. Uh, And so there's two senators in those 38 states and there's two senators in California. So that creates this polarization also. So there's structural reasons for this. Uh, I don't blame everything on the voters. I do blame uh, people like Trump and others who take advantage of the polarization and throw gasoline on embers and make it even worse as populace. Um, I used to work for a guy by the name of Hubert Humphrey in the Senate. After his vice presidency, and he'd go back to Minnesota, knowing full well that the, his his the Minnesota disagreed with him on a particular stand, and he'd go back and he explained to them why he voted against the majority of the uh, of the people in Minnesota based on, on polls, and he said, you know, I've listened to all the arguments. You've elected me as a representative to represent you and to make judgments, and he tried to lead the population, the voters, around what he believed in, in a rational way. We do not have people like that anymore. We don't have, they can't afford to go back and do that or they get booed uh, by the well-organized far right or well-organized far left. Um, It is a crisis in our democracy right now.
0: Well, you you mentioned uh, Hubert Humphrey, who in my view uh, was about 40 years ahead of his time, some of the things he, he advocated, but, but it seems to me, when I think about Hubert Humphrey, um, Father Coughlin, for example, didn't have you know five million Twitter followers. Um, it was a, it was a very limited way of one opposition getting their message out. So anyone now with a laptop and a Wi-Fi connection can potentially get a propagandist message out that may or may not be accurate. Most oftentimes, it's, it's inaccurate just to rile up a certain segment of the population. So that's a fundamental difference, is it not, that, that our democracy, we talked about Madison earlier, that Madison could not have conceived of you know, in 1787. Social
2: media makes it easy to get out messages. And the messages that are on the far right, uh, far left, uh, and using AI uh, these days uh, are, are ways to rile things up immediately. When something happens immediately, they, uh, there are people on the internet that, that uh, take advantage of that and they can, they can push lies. It's a major problem uh, and they can uh, distort things. We've seen that in terms of, of uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, and they can really rile, rile up the far right and far left. We see this now with anti-Semitic uh, posts, Islamophobic uh, posts. We see that in terms of people trying to make sense of the Palestinian population uh, in the West Bank, but also uh, in Gaza, that most of them were afraid of the Hamas uh, leadership and the military, and they they just wanted to live there peacefully, and they're being thrown together uh, with the Hamas. Uh, the terrible things that Hamas fighters did in uh, in Israel, and all of that is instantaneously up on social media, and that's true in the United States, also. You make a mistake, you slip, and make a mistake in a speech by one or two words, uh, it was overlooked in the past. Now it it gets uh, blown up and put out on on social media. Or if you're a president and you trip over a sandbag that, you know, on a stage by mistake, uh, and like Biden did, that goes out and that becomes part of the campaign against him because they think he's too old. Yeah, He's 80 and, and uh, Trump is 77. They're pretty close in terms of age and they both make mistakes. But that is amplified now. I don't think Madison would have would have even thought about anything like what we have right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when Humphrey gave his speech uh, at the Democratic National Conve- Convention of pushing for civil rights uh, in the party against those in the, uh, the the segregationists from the South, and they walked out of, of that uh 48 convention it put him on the stage but that was because a whole lot of people watched uh, broadcast television and they saw it and they heard it and then a lot and then it took days of interpretation in the print media uh that's very different than today today goes out instantaneously
0: and that's that's tough hard to believe that in between it wasn't until 1976 that the country saw the actual footage of the Zapruder film, the Kennedy assassination, when they happened in 63, that would have, we would, today, we would see that instantaneously. So we live in a much, much different world. And we see it instantaneously
2: from probably about 50 different cell phones that took it from different angles, you know? Yeah. uh, That certainly happened with the horrendous slaughter of women, children, uh, and uh, others at a, at a rave dance out of, out of Israel. and it's happening in Gaza, too. I mean, you get all kinds of, of different views of this. Now that's, it's good that you have more transparency, but it's hard to, it, it, it's really hard to govern when you don't know completely what the truth is and to bring people around and when people get very
0: emotional about something as they should in, you know in a war. Are you optimistic that we can wade through this next chapter of American democracy?
2: Well, I have a dog that's named Hope. She's by my feet right now. And uh, I always have Hope, my dog, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but I also have, I have to have hope. Um, and there, there has to be some reaction to these extremes um, and I, I have hope with the next generation. My granddaughter, uh, who unfortunately wants to study political science, <laughs> uh, I say that because I know it's a hard road. But anyway, she uh, she thinks both candidates for the presidency right now are much too old. How can I vote for either one of them? I try to explain that if if you want. Uh, if you don't want Trump and you don't vote, that that's a vote for him. And she said, "Yeah, that must be the, that. That's probably the case." But I have hope for her and the next generation to come through and try to change things, try to bring things together. Now we have a whole lot of caucuses. I just met with uh, some of them on the on the Hill and in, in the House of Representatives that are that are uh, bipartisan. There's a there's one called the bipartisan working group there's one fixed Congress, there's a bunch of them that have Democrats and Republicans together, mainly they're young new members from fairly moderate districts that are trying to improve the way the house works. I have hope for groups like that. I have hope that they go back and try to influence their constituents, but their constituents get get riled up by social media, riled up by Trump, for example, uh, riled up by uh, local right-wing and left-wing or organizations, is, it's very hard to, to go against that. But in the end, I believe in First Amendment rights. I believe in the press. I believe in programs like this. I believe in uh, freedom of speech, assembly, freedom, freedom of petition, government grievances, meaning lobbyists, yes, and organizations to to slow down what's going on uh, in terms of undermining our democracy. We, we have hope because we have those guardrails. We have the Constitution and First Amendment rights that will help us.
0: Professor James Thurber, thank you so much, sir, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y. R O N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon prime, soundcloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the public rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap using your mobile device. Simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5 and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.